Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. And it's official. Recreational cannabis will be allowed to hit store shelves on October 17th. But will the provinces and will the producers have enough time to get everything in order? The CD Howe Institute's Rosalie Wanch, she joins us today to discuss everything from supply to infrastructure to retail challenges facing the industry over the next 17 weeks. Then we're going to talk to UBC economist Bernard Antweiler about the concerns for the world economy amid escalating tit-for-tat tariffs between the United States and China. He's going to explain how these measures are poised to damage global trade and put small economies like ours in the crossfire. But first, here's the C.D. Howe Institute's Rosalie Weinsch. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced this week that legalization date for recreational cannabis is coming. Now producers, provinces, and everyone in between, they have 17 weeks to prepare. Joining us today to talk about the challenges ahead of October 17th, it is Rosalie Wanch. She is a policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute. Rosalie, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me on. Gee, uh, I I think I know my math on this one, but uh, just the other day we were talking about an 8 to 12 week wait. 17? 17 weeks? Yeah, I guess so. It's uh, it's quite a long time. And, uh, you know, they definitely are missing the initially the initial target date of July 1st. Uh, however, at this point, um, there's there's certainty that legalization is actually moving forward. And I think that the, the deadline of July 1st was really uh, more of a tool to mobilize provincial policymakers to actually start getting ready. But now that legalization definitely is actually going to happen. There's less of a risk in, um, you know, delaying a little bit to give the provinces that time that they've been asking for. It's funny, if you actually make the provinces do something at a given time, you see the move much swifter than we'd ever (laughs) expect, which uh, who'd have thunk it'd be possible here. But is the 17 weeks, is that going to give everybody enough time to get all their ducks in a row going forward? Uh, well, I think it's hard to say um, because it obviously varies by province. And so I think it's more likely that the provinces that have chosen to license retail establishments are, you know, they are more likely to be more ready uh, than the provinces that have chosen Crown Corporation, simply because it's more work for the Crown Corporation to set up all of the stores individually than it is for a you know, regulatory authority to approve or not licenses. Uh, and then have a whole bunch of businesses setting up. So it's not so, looking good for BC uh, at this point, maybe? Uh, well, potentially not. And it's it's one of those things that there's a lot of moving parts. So I don't think that they'll be completely ready. But there's also, you know, they'll never be 100% ready. And uh, there's going to be some, you know, glitches in the system that are just going to have to be worked out once we go live, essentially. Because... You know, you can tr- attempt to design the perfect retail system, uh, but then there's always going to be some unintended consequences or some, you know, bottlenecks in the system that need to be dealt with. In in this case here, uh, the government has chosen the date of October 17th, and that almost comes down to the day uh, preceding the, uh, the the one year to the election, uh, the 2019 election. It, it has Have we seen the kind of orderly progress toward legalization that you might have expected as a policy analyst on whether now we we have a, a, a stable process by which 
we're going to lead to legalization? Uh, I would say that this is for the, I guess, once a century multi-level of government policy endeavor that this was. This was mm-hmm. about as fast as we could reasonably expect them to move. Um, and I think that there's also now a danger in waiting too long to actually make it effective uh, because Canada does have a very prolific and functional black market. And with legalization definitely coming, there's the longer there's, the system isn't sort of online and well-functioning, basically that's just leaving opportunity for the black market. So it's, I think that there's really a bit of a balance between making sure that the provinces at least are as ready as they can be, but also not giving the black market a ton of time to you know, find ways to integrate itself with this new legal system. Yeah, if you look at British Columbia, there's already municipalities coming out saying that they will not allow the retail outlets within their jurisdiction. And I wonder, in your opinion, what does that mean for the future of the black market persisting throughout various communities across the province of BC, but the rest of Canada as well? Well, I think that it's really... um, it's a bit counterintuitive, but for those municipalities, they're actually much more likely to have a functional black market if they don't allow for retail storefronts. Yeah. Uh, simply because if people, if the black market can serve people conveniently within the municipality, then people are unlikely to drive to the next, you know, county over or town over to uh, get a, get access to legal supply. So it's it's a bit counterintuitive, but I think that by allowing legal retail that actually allows competition with the black market. And uh, so it's, and it's more likely that the black market will naturally move to where there's less competition for demand. And does that principle apply as well, Rosalie, um, to provinces? You know, here we are in uh, 2018, and, and there is not a great deal of difference in, uh, in the provincial retail situation for alcohol, but we're bound to legalize cannabis with a real patchwork of different approaches province by province. Do you, can you foresee a time when there is somewhat of a national standard, a national approach? Uh, I think we got about as close to that for the beginning of cannabis legalization that we could, uh, in terms of actually harmonizing more over time, I would say that, you know, we've had a hundred years to deal with our cross border, uh, provincial cross-border trade and alcohol issues, and we're still very much struggling with it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I would say I'm not optimistic. I think it's absolutely possible, but it does require coordinated effort and negotiations between the provinces to actually work these things out. And so if there's, you know, one province, say, is targets lower prices and doesn't target profit um, to try and squash the black market, where another province try, tries to be more restrictive then there may be profit for people in the black market to actually access legal supply in one province, drive it over the border, and then sell it illegally in another province. Yeah, there, wouldn't, there that, wouldn't that be? That <laughs> yeah, what, what a specter that is. Oh, well, uh, one of the other things that can be, I think, further tied together, though, is maybe the issue of both pricing and distribution, because different provinces are going to have different methods of distribution. I know here in British Columbia, it's not going to be coming straight from, say, the producers to the retail outlets. There's going to be a distribution manager here. It's one extra step, one extra middleman involved with this. How are these things tied together? Uh, can we expect, I don't know, some best practices to eventually come out of this? What are some of the challenges ahead for the distribution question that we have? Well, I think that it's 
it's uh, really we've actually done quite well um, relative to alcohol and having uh, coordinated. There is a, a wholesale buyer, like each province is actually acts as a wholesale buyer, I think. And there's uh, the suppliers, the legal producers aren't actually necessarily able to sell directly to the retail stores in any province. And I think that that's it's. It is a middleman. It is a friction in the system. But I think because this is a recreational product that does have some public health concerns associated with it, maintaining uh, provincial control at the wholesale level does make some sense because they they then uh, maintain some control and ability to, you know, see who is purchasing how much. And if there's, you know, anything fishy going on in the system where, say, a retail business has incomes that are much higher than the amount of marijuana that they would have purchased. That's where you could start to see something where maybe there's some illicit supply working into the system. So I think by maintaining provincial wholesale control, it really is a defense against allowing the black market to integrate itself into this new retail market. There's a couple of uh, uh, critical policy questions I want to ask you on this one as well. Uh, the first really concerns how it is that uh, that in the new regime, a legalized regime, uh, we ought to be approaching integrating those that have operated outside the system, uh, say in the dispensaries, the people who who have a, an inherent understanding of the product line, for instance, that is likely to be better than say some of those that are that are going to be brought into the system as as new employees and so on. How for, how do you think it's smart to integrate? Uh, those people in the in the existing cannabis culture. Well, I would say for one thing, they're they're at these retail stores. They will be hiring bud tenders, as mm-hmm. we've been calling them. Um, and so, people that are currently working in illegal retail stores may choose to actually just switch to a new employer that's in, at a re, at a legal retail store because that gives them protections, you know, like minimum wage. Um, and if the store gets robbed, they can actually call the cops, that sort of thing. So there's yeah. a certain benefit to just, you know, all things equal, being mm-hmm. employed by a legal outlet as opposed to an illegal one. Uh, so there might be some natural shifts that happen, but also for the businesses themselves, uh, if you give them the ability to get licensed, the dispensaries that already exist, then basically you're bringing them into the fold instead of leaving the choice to them whether they would prefer to continue acting in the illegal market, mm-hmm. um, they, you're basically bringing them, giving them the option to become legal and instead of keeping them out and then basically give it, they're all giving them the forced choice of competing with the legal market. So if, as much as this activity has been illegal up to this point, um, given the knowledge and that these businesses would hold, as well as the fact that they're probably located where there's highest demand. Uh, there's, I think it would be beneficial to look at actually looking at the existing dispensaries as potential licensees yeah. for retail. And, and the second one is, uh, is more of a political question. You, you watch this uh, move through the House of Commons and into the Senate and back to the House of Commons and back to the Senate and seem to be a bit of a ping pong ball there for a bit of time. But clearly the conservatives uh, still had their concerns about the way this legislation was coming through, just the fact that the legislation even existed. Is it, 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 it have we just pa- uh, passed that point now where there's going to be any kind of serious political debate about the need for legalization? Do you think the conservatives give this one up 
uh, as they move toward an election? I think that there was a certain amount of, you know, there were there are people that hold ideological um, views about why cannabis shouldn't be legal. And I mean, pe- people are perfectly able to hold those views and uh, politicians should represent them. It's just uh, really that the majority of Canadians want were in favor of legalization. And the further we move, the higher that number gets as, you know, the sky doesn't fall and crime doesn't massively explode. And I think as soon as it actually becomes legal, it would be very, very difficult politically to then make it illegal again. I would also like to point out that we haven't actually had constitutionally valid marijuana prohibition for uh, medicinal marijuana essentially ever because it mm-hmm. when it was put up to a charter challenge, it failed. They write new regulations. They're challenged again. They fail. And so it, it was one of those, I think, that we were going in this direction anyway. And we also see other countries, you know, there certain U.S. states. And as well, there was a recent court case in the U.K. about a woman bringing cannabis oil for her epileptic child into the U.K. And she was, you know, now allowed to do that. So I think that the world has is starting to come around to the idea that the war on drugs was actually a way to make being a drug dealer profitable. Hmm. Okay. So I, I sense between the three of us, there might be just a little bit of skepticism that we're going to get a smooth rollout between now and October 17th. So Rosalie, I'd love for you to come back and just fill us in and all the uh, further challenges that maybe the industry is facing as we get closer to the legalization date. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. No problem, and I would be happy to do that. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Excellent. That's Rosalie Watch. She's a policy analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute. Stay with us. UBC economist Bernard Antweiler is going to join us next to talk about the escalating tariffs between the United States and China. Trade tensions between the United States and China, they continue to escalate this week as each country's threatening tit-for-tat tariffs. Now, this potential trade war has more than enough potential to spill across the globe and affect trade worldwide. And joining us today to discuss what hundreds of billions of dollars worth of tariffs could mean for economic growth, it is Werner Antweiler. He's an associate professor at the Sauter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. Werner, thanks for joining us on the show today. Hello. So I think... Direct damage to international trade, very obvious. We could see it. But what kinds of indirect damage are we looking at here right now between the U.S. and China? Well, there are spillovers across uh, the border to Canada as well because we have a very integrated supply chain. So whenever the United States is hurt by retaliatory measures from China, um, we also will feel the pain um, because we buy intermediate goods from the U.S. On the other hand, there are some new opportunities for Canadian businesses exporting to China and filling gaps uh, left there by uh, Chinese suppliers uh, uh, switching uh, to uh, cheaper Canadian goods if they're facing tariffs from the United States. So it's a, it's a very complicated situation where it's far from clear um, if Canada will uh, uh, ba- gain or lose from it. But at the same time, uh, we will overall lose simply because the trade war is damaging expectations of businesses. And that will hold back investment as uh, everybody is nervous about what the future will hold. And, and that will certainly damage uh, not only the United States and China, but also Canada and other economies around the world. It's interesting because it, it, even if uh, these tariffs don't somehow uh, get instituted, uh, you can already sense this uh, lack of confidence in the stability of the trade system right now. Is that already having 
uh, the kind of impact that that we may see here for months and years to come? Yeah, slowly and steadily, we see that um, there is a certain sense of nervousness in the business community about uh, whether the the recovery in the economy that has taken root over the last year or two will really uh, take hold, or if um, this, this trade war will uh, diminish the outlook on uh, on business opportunities for the next number of years. And if that is the case, they will be more hesitant about investment. So rather than actually going ahead with an investment that they may have had planned already, they may say, well, well let's wait and see. Uh, let's delay that for a little bit. And of course, uh, that will mean that uh, um, uh, the, the economic growth will, uh, will slacken and we will see actual damage to the economy. Yeah, and I don't think we can say that Canada is not complicit with this because, of course, Canada is going to be introducing its own retaliatory measures against the United States right. in response to the steel and aluminum tariffs as well. I mean, Canada still has the option of going through the WTO, but I mean, that can take a very long time to resolve. Are, are, are the options looking kind of thin? Are, are other players across the world just seeing, hey, I'll do the quickest option possible to, I don't know, show a signal of some sort of pushback then? Yes, I think uh, standing up to these measures coming out of Washington is is important uh, to to basically Im- improve the bargaining position in all of this. Is essentially what everybody is saying. Well, if uh, the United States is uh, um, ramping down their trade measures, we're going to uh, remove ours as well, and and we restore um, sort of sanity to the international trading system. The the greatest damage that is being done is to the rules-based international trading system that we have taken 70 years to build because yeah. we have relied on institutions such as the World Trade Organization and the dispute mechan- um, dispute settlement mechanisms that are part of it to to come to terms with uh, uh, any uh, conflict we may have about uh, unfair subsidies or, or dumping practices or, or other unfair kinds of things. So instead now, uh, the Trump administration is unilaterally saying, well, we're going to ignore all these rules, we're going to impose whatever measures we like without any uh, without any solid justification. And the justification they use in the case of Canada and Mexico is national security concerns about steel. Uh, and that is to a, uh, as we all know, uh, an ally for, 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 for generations. Uh, and so it, it is becoming increasingly damaging to see these uh, U.S. measures uh, running afoul of, of these uh, rules-based uh, institutions that we have had such a hard time building over the last decade. It would be um, rather simple to pinpoint this problem and say, well, it's then we, we just ignore the rogue nation here, the United States, that appears to be engendering all these disputes. But how nimble are businesses to avoid the United States or to try to uh, affirm trade partnerships with other countries or supplies with other countries. Aren't we still stuck in this, though, for some time to come? Yes, unfortunately, because the United States is just too big a player in the international economic system to ignore. Uh, The U.S. is uh, uh, an important import and exporter, but it's also an important uh, part of the uh, international supply chains. So it's very difficult to to ignore what's going on in the United States because all businesses uh, in some way or another are connected to the the big economies, China and the United States. And so whatever happens there affects everybody. And uh, as a result, uh, um, businesses will have a hard time adapting to this if they like it or not. Do you anticipate that there's going to be more pressure on the federal government to move forward with a free trade agreement with China? There's some expectations when Trudeau visited Beijing earlier this year that we'd have an announcement. Nothing came out of that. Maybe the uh, apparent agreement would not have been so satisfying to Canada at this point, but is pressure ramping up at this point? 
Uh, not very strongly yet, because there are some issues that really need to, to be resolved. While uh, we will be gaining simply from the fact that our goods are now going to be cheaper compared to U.S. goods, uh, that will give uh, Canadian businesses already a boost. And the, the free trade agreement uh, uh, won't necessarily change the terms for, for many uh, goods. Uh, that are uh, still considered problematic, in particular cars. Uh, there's uh, always been uh, uh, restrictions uh, in, in that sector. So we will see the negotiations continue, but I don't think there's any uh, greater urge now to move uh, to, to conclude these, uh, these uh, free trade agreements on disadvantageous terms. So where we see uh, trade agreements uh, coming into effect, uh, the, uh, the Canada-EU uh, Comprehensive uh, Trade Agreement, um, we still see even reluctance in some parts of the EU, like in notably Italy, to, to ratify this agreement. So uh, we better make sure that those agreements we have are, are going into force and we can rely on them in the future. Bernard, so many, um, so many analysts have uh, lapsed into uh, decrying what the United States is up to here and, and portraying it as a bit of a bully in this case. But it does remind us in some cases of our own, uh, our own issues in this case. We can laugh when Donald Trump says that Canadians are sneaking shoes back into the country, you know, because of the high tariffs. But he's also on to our supply management system. Uh, he's on to uh, the, the, the crucial issues involving intellectual property with some parts of the world. D does the U.S. at least have a point on some of its dispute? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are some issues in, in any country where we are protecting domestic industries for historic reasons, for, for other reasons, and where um, we uh, have been jealously guarding uh, that turf against uh, competition from other nations. And agriculture has been the preserve of uh, most of these measures, mm -hmm. whether it has been in, in uh, years past the, the wheat board uh, that has now been dismantled, or we still have the, the protection on the dairy industry and the poultry industry. Uh, yes, uh, so there are some arguments uh, that were made, well, uh, we may want to protect uh, small farmers, we may want to, we may want to protect uh, the, uh, the quality of the dairy products, but still, um, that can be done through regulation rather than actually keeping out foreign competition. Uh, the, uh, the, the reasons that are brought forward to defend these uh, um, um, the restrictions are not very strong, and I think the U.S. does have a point that opening up these sectors actually would be, in the end, beneficial for Canadians. The United States has been rather hawkish in this matter against China. Um, is China actually being kind of measured? Or are they taking a step back, looking at the big picture, or are they just trying to figure out what exactly is the end game for the United States before they announce anything officially? Yes, uh, China and other nations that are affected by these stairs, uh, they will look very cautiously at uh, what is in store. How can they be effective in taking measures against the U.S. that basically send a clear message that says, uh, uh, if you back down, we're going to remove our uh, measures too, and we're going to return to the negotiating table to actually see what real issues there are that need to be resolved. Now, uh, when you see retaliation, uh, you see this is done very strategically. Uh, in, in part, it's, of course, you target the same industries like aluminum and steel. But beyond that, uh, we have to see what is actually being uh, imported and, and where actually can you send a clear and uh, clear message. For example, uh, American exports to China uh, include um, aircraft, soya beans, and cars. These are sort of the big items in that in that package. And so you can very uh, strategically target uh, uh, aircraft or soya beans and, and say, well, uh, if, um, uh, if if these are particularly U.S. states that are swing states in elections, 
maybe uh, bringing those into play will send a stronger message than, than uh, targeting other industries that uh, will not send uh, necessarily as strong uh, a message. That is a lesson that was learned uh, many years ago when the European Union actually targeted uh, um, basically uh, uh, U.S. states that were up as uh, swing states in the election and uh, in, in retaliation uh, uh, sanctioned by the World Trade Organization to um, uh, some nefarious practices by the U.S. exporters uh, at that time uh, regarding uh, oranges in Florida. But um, the, the retaliation measures are, are much more strategic. So in addition to these uh, key industries, steel and aluminum, you also see uh, things like bourbon from Kentucky that is being targeted. Uh, or, uh, or or other uh, types of goods that um, may be coming from some of these uh, swing states. Some might conclude that maybe this is a time for us to re-examine uh, the system that you pointed out earlier has taken uh, nearly three quarters of a century to uh, to enact. But it, are we just in too much of a crazy time here to uh, to to come up with some kind of an alternative to the? World Trade Organization or some other way to to resolve disputes is is this just something that we have to ride out? Well, uh, certainly, we we need to work towards defending the institutions that we have built uh, and uh, uh, restoring the world trading system to sanity will not be easy if uh, one of the major players is not playing ball in this. Uh, but uh, governments change, and um, the uh, the effect. Um, that uh, these measures will have on the U.S. economy will be very important because uh, they cannot deliver because in a trade where everybody loses and the United States will lose uh, from these measures because uh, it will be passed on through higher prices to consumers and except for maybe saving a few jobs in, uh, for some aluminum uh, and steel plants, uh, the, the consumers overall will lose uh, and, and eventually that will lead to frustration and people realizing that these measures actually are not delivering what they promised to deliver, uh, which is more jobs. And then that happens, uh, people will, I think, realize that uh, uh, moving away from these policies is desirable. And uh, uh, we'll see how this will play out in the midterm elections. We'll see how this plays out in, in another two years when uh, we have the next round of presidential elections in the United States. So, so meantime, people will uh, take notice. meantime, just ride it out. Play for time. I think uh, this is certainly <laughs> okay. also uh, what we see in the negotiations. Uh, do no damage or minimize the damage at this point. And, and, and play for time and, and see that uh, um, once uh, things will change in uh, the U.S. political scene, that uh, we can hopefully restore to a system of normalcy in international trade relations. Well, so it's a very uncertain time, but Werner, I want to thank you for making time for us on the program today. My pleasure. That's Werner Anfeiler. He is an associate professor at the Sauter School of Business at UBC. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave a review. And be sure to find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. Thanks a lot for listening.